Welcome back to Outdoors with me, Lawrence Gunther. Today, Lily's going to bring us up to speed on what's going on with Emperor Penguins. And then Dave Brown and I, from the Now with Dave Brown show, are going to be talking about hazards to migrating birds. I've got some tips to share on how to keep your hands safe by selecting the right glove for the job. And I've got a few reflections to share on preparing for winter. Of course, Lewis is going to be covered on this as well. Let's get to it. Getting Schooled with Miss Lily. Hi, Lily. Hey. What's this I hear about emperor penguins being in trouble? Oh, my goodness, aren't they always? Well, yeah, <laughs> I know I did something on this a while ago with uh, on Now with Dave Brown, but uh, now you know, I hear they're in the news again. Well, the greatest threat emperor penguins face is uh, not one that's surprising. It's climate change. Oh, boy. Yeah. Yeah. It is disrupting the sea ice cover they rely on unless governments adopt policies that reduce the greenhouse gases driving global warming. So Lily, what do we know about emperor penguins? Researchers have studied the emperor penguins around point geology in the Antarctic since the 1960s. Those decades of data are now helping scientists gauge the effect of anthropogenic climate change on the penguins, their sea ice habitat and their food sources. Penguins breed on fast ice, which is sea ice attached to land, but they hunt for food within the pack ice. Pack ice includes sea ice flows that move with the wind or ocean currents. Sea ice is also important for resting during their annual molt and to escape from their predators. The penguin population at Point Geology declined by half in the late 1970s when wow. s- yeah, that's a lot. When sea ice declined and more male emperor penguins died. Aww. The population never fully recovered from massive breeding failures and that's something that has been occurring more frequently. Lily, can can these penguins adapt to shifting conditions? Emperor penguins are adapted to their current cold environment, but the species has not evolved to survive the rapid effects of climate change. Yeah, that threatened to reshape its world. Every colony will be in decline by 2100. Are you saying that these penguins are heading towards extinction? Uh, The colony of point geology will be marching towards extinction by the end of the century, and it won't just be that colony. Using images from space, scientists have determined that every colony will be declining by the end of the century if greenhouse gases continue their current courses. That's not good. No. Major environmental shifts such as the late formation and early loss of the sea ice on which colonies are located are already raising the risk. A dramatic example is the recent collapse of Halley Bay, the second largest emperor penguin colony in Antarctica. Oh, More than 10,000 chicks died in 2016 when sea ice broke up early, and the colony has not yet recovered. You know, one slight shift in the weather pattern can be so destructive. The poor baby penguins. So, Lily, if the world met the goals of the Paris Accord, you know, in terms of 1.5 degrees temperature rising no more by the end of the century, will that do the trick? The results of recent studies show that if the world meets the Paris Climate Agreement targets keeping warming to under 1.5 degrees Celsius compared with pre-industrial temperatures, that could protect sufficient habitat to halt the emperor penguin's decline. But the world isn't on track to meet the Paris Agreement. In a report released October 27, 2022, so very recently, 
The United Nations Environment Program said current policies have the world headed for 2.8 degrees Celsius or 5 degrees Fahrenheit of warming by the end of the century, and if countries meet their current pledges to cut emissions, that will mean warming of at least 2.4 degrees Celsius. Well, that's not good. Lily, describe to us what a emperor penguin looks like. Well, first off, people think that they're awkward, almost comical with their, you know, their hobbling gait. Yeah. But emperors walk with a peaceful and serene grace. Really? Yeah. They can get to 101 to 132 uh, centimeters tall. Wow. They're like long, white, skinny, oval-shaped creatures with black heads and, and yellow necks and black wings. Okay, yellow necks, eh? Black wings and a white chest. Yep, and a black back with a little tail at the bottom. Lots of people don't think penguins have kneecaps or knees, actually, but they do have knees. They do, eh? They're just hidden under their fluff. Under their feathers. So they can walk gracefully. They don't have just peg legs that they're wobbling around They on. look like they do. You know, it really doesn't take much to reach the tipping point when it comes to changes to the environment. And I'm just thinking about, you know, the 7 billion snow crabs that disappeared off the coast of Alaska in the mm -hmm. Northeast Pacific Ocean. And, uh, you know, like there was 8 billion crabs there. And all of a sudden, 7 billion disappeared because they ran out of food. Because there was just way too many crabs born at the wrong time. And as a result of rising ocean temperatures. It's kind of like the emperor penguins, the proverbial canary of the coal mine, you know? The future of emperor penguins and much of life on Earth, including humanity, ultimately depends upon the decisions made now, such as by those attending the latest rounds of climate negotiations in Egypt. Pay attention to what's going on in Egypt. Send them your positive vibes. Let's get this done, people. Thanks, Lily. Bye. Time for the bucket list. Here's a segment I recorded with Dave Brown on his show, now with Dave Brown, on hazards to migrating birds. Coming soon to a city sky near you, birds. Also coming to a city sky near you, some birds that may get injured or possibly die due to conditions in the city. Dave, what on earth are you talking about? <laughs> well, don't just depend on me. Let's bring in environmental contributor Lawrence Gunther to talk about this. So, Lawrence, I want to put you into the mind of a bird. Why are migrating <laughs> birds attracted to big cities? Well, it's the position of the cities, right? And, and the flyways that these birds traditionally take. So the two are related. You know, you think about birds, and, and if they're going to travel a long way, they want to have water, they need to drink, and they need food. And where do you find that? Along shorelines. Where do we build our cities? Along shorelines. Ah. That's one problem, right? The other problem is birds navigate uh, by starlight, and a lot of them migrate at night. So what do cities have a lot of? fake stars, all those bright lights, mm -hmm, so they naturally mm -hmm. are attracted to these cities. Okay, all right. Lawrence, you've convinced me. If, As I put my mind into the mindset of a bird, I would have said, send me to the forest where I can have fresh water and all the space I, I want. Know. But even I birds, even, no even birds are yeah. prone to urbanization. Uh, Lawrence, what is it about cities then that ends up presenting a danger to these migrating birds? 
Well, according to Flap Canada, about 25 million birds collide with windows every year. So that's the second leading cause of death uh, for migrating birds in Canada is, is impacts with windows. You know, they can avoid buildings. Buildings, they're just big obstacles, but windows can look like sky, right? It looks like uh, a part of their fly path if there's a lot of reflection, if there's nothing to you know, alert them that it's not a, a, a fly path, they'll bang right into it. The other leading cause, Dave, guess what the leading cause oh, of death to birds is. Cats. You got it. Can you imagine? Cats. They, more than 25 million birds. Cats get more than 25 million birds. These domestic house cats, man, I'm telling you. Although, you know, frankly, oh. if, we, if, we, if we let the dogs run loose, they'd probably, they'd probably do the same too. But they're not as fast as cats, you know. They don't have the same, they don't have the same ability. They're more clumpy and glompy. Uh, Lawrence, so when we're talking about the number of birds that are being impacted, let's start from sort of a building or a, or a city perspective. Hmm. What can cities do to stop birds from colliding with buildings or other infrastructure? Good question. You know, Vancouver, Toronto, Calgary have all adopted bird-friendly urban design guidelines. So that means, you know, how to make your lights not reflect up so much, maybe turn them down at night, and putting in non-reflective windows, windows that reflect clouds and skies, but more windows that present more of a dark, uh, uh, solid image to birds. So that's a big help for sure. And what about on the individual side? I mean, we mentioned that it's cats that are that are doing some of this bird killing. But what can we do as individuals to maybe make our backyards or balconies a little safer for birds? Well, if you live in a high rise or you have big windows in your home, you might consider turning your lights off at night or pulling the blinds down, right? To, so they don't present that sort of star image to birds that this is this is the way to go. Look, at the, the stars are that way. We've got to go this way. The other thing you can do during the day is you can dress up your windows, you know, by hanging strings in front of the windows on the inside to break up the pattern, put dots on your windows or have a shade that comes down a little bit, you know, just some shears or something just to give the window a, a, a more of a solid look and keep your cats indoors. <laughs> keep those cats maybe a little declawed <laughs> and a little bit more indoors. Oh, uh, don't go declawed, man. You're going down a whole nother yeah, road Yeah, okay, there. sorry. The cat lovers are going to come for me now. They are, they've already said yeah. some mean things about cats on this segment. Now they're really going to come for me. Uh, Lawrence, what about Where? some other stuff we can do to uh, safeguard birds? I, I know that, for example, a lot of people, especially those who have houses, became passionate birders during the pandemic, hanging up uh, feeders and whatnot. But what can we do to offer them more safeguards? Get to know your birds, and for sure, having feeders in your yard is gives you a chance to understand the birds coming in. If you don't know what birds they are, get some of these apps that recognize the calls. Right, they're really cool. You just it's like Shazam or something. You just hold your phone up, uh, be silent, and the and the phone listens and then tells you what the birds are in your backyards. Knowing the birds in your yard is the first step towards sort of understanding how to be more bird friendly. I like that one. Do you keep uh, bird feeders in the backyard, Lawrence? Well, I do, and the squirrels love them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 that's it. They end up becoming a squirrel feeder, even the ones that are labeled oh, as squirrel-proof. Not so much no the case. <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, for example, a member of my family got really into birding during the pandemic, so I bought them a uh, bird feeder for Christmas. And then next thing yeah. they know, they found a rat on their balcony going for the bird feeder, and they were like, <laughs> we have bigger problems to deal with here. Maybe we should let our cat out and uh, do some damage. We saw squirrels dangling from the eave trough with their front paws, and then 
kicking the feeder with their back legs <laughs> and, and just to shake the seat out onto the ground, right? And then who's on the ground taking advantage of that? The dogs. Yeah. Well, it up. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. It's a it's the circle of life. It's the circle of life in the food chain through yeah. and through. Hey Lily, what's this about Flap Canada launching a petition and a protest? Flap Canada has a call to action to share. It's time to speak up for the feathered friends. Yes. Although preventable, bird and window collisions are one of the leading causes of bird mortality globally. Bird-friendly building standards that include window treatment, reduction of glass glazing, as well as turning building lights off when not in use, and other architectural features are well known to help significantly reduce collisions. Incorporating bird-friendly design standards into the Ontario Building Code is the most impactful way to save bird lives on a provincial scale. That makes sense. If mandated, all newly built buildings would have to adhere to the Canadian Standard Association, CSA, Bird-Friendly Building Design Standard. Yes, I like that. Please join the folks from Flap Canada at Queen's Park in Toronto on Tuesday, November 15th at 11 a.m. alongside MPP Chris Glover and other local bird conservation leaders to help make this motion a reality. If you can't attend, please consider signing the petition organized by Flap Canada instead. That's a great idea. So if you're not in the Toronto area, you can't get there easily, sign the petition, folks. We gotta save our birds. Outdoor tips and tech. People with uh, low vision who have questions on doing stuff in the outdoors, contact me through my blindfishingboat.com website. They email me at info at blindfishingboat.com with uh, questions. This is how I first met Ahmed, the blind captain. He paddled his kayak across the Mediterranean there out of Egypt. He was the first person to kayak from Africa to Europe. So Ahmed contacted me and asked me about what's the best glove to use for going crabbing. So he's emptying his crab pods, his traps, and uh, he's getting pinched. He wants to know if there's a glove that I could recommend. It got me thinking about all the different gloves I use to stay safe while doing stuff in the outdoors. So without further ado, here's why I own so many different types of gloves. And I'll get to answering Ahmed's question at the end. Keeping your hands clean and safe and warm when you're outdoors is always a challenge. I've purchased many different gloves over the years. And in the end, you know, I usually go with the cheap ones, except for a handful of different options. And I'll, I'll tell you about those. But more normally, you can get by with some pretty cheap gloves. They're not expensive. For example, mechanics gloves, you can get them at the hardware store, you know, Home Depot, places like that. They have really good protection for your knuckles and good thin leather on the pads of your fingers so you can feel things. I use these in the gym a lot because, you know, mechanics, when they hand slips off a wrench and they bang their, their hand on a, a piece of metal in the engine compartment, it hurts. So they have really good protection for that. These really work good for weights. They give you grip. You don't get your hands all roughed up by doing weights in the gym. And uh, they protect your fingers a little bit as well. And they're comfortable. But I don't wear them outside because they're leather and they'll rip. But they will give up the ghost after a while. For all round work outdoors, I just use those construction type labor gloves. You know, the leather ones, they're sort of big and floppy on your hands. They work really well. And you can buy them in the 12 pack for like, you know, 20 bucks kind of thing at the hardware store. I especially love them when I'm using the buck saw. When I'm working with wood, cutting wood outside, tree limbs, branches, you know, small logs into size because you're holding the piece of wood with your left hand and in my case and cutting with your right hand so you know I'm always positioning the blade with my left hand before I start to cut and I tell you my left gloves always get cut up but my fingers are always safe 
they, they also have good grip when you're carrying something and they uh, sort of keep your fingers from getting pinched a little bit. They offer some protection all the way around and they keep your hands a little bit cleaner as well. So uh, yeah, pick up some of those and don't be worried if they wear out, if they get holes. They seem to often get holes. Just toss them out and get another pair. In the boat, uh, fishing, you know, I use those cheap nylon gloves that fit really tight to your hand and they have the rubber palm and, and finger pad grips. They, they just, just enough to keep the uh, cold wind off your hand when you're holding the fishing rod all the time. Even when I'm walking around with a guide dog, I always keep a pair of my, my pockets or my coats. Uh, they're, they're not expensive. Again, you can buy them in the 12 pack at places like Costco and places like that. Just make sure you don't take the wrong colored ones or mix up the colors. So, you know, ball them together, each pair together. So the colors don't get mixed up because they always seem to sell those packs in, in multiple colors. I do have specific gloves for ice fishing. They're fingerless because I want to be able to touch the line. I want to be able to tie knots. But they have fingers just up to sort of the, the last knuckle before your fingertip. And then they have a sort of flip over mitt that pops over top of your fingers to keep them warm when you're holding the fishing rod and you can flip it back and it holds back with Velcro when you need to do something. These are uh, fishing specific gloves I bought at Sail Outdoors. And I have something similar for the summer except they're minus the mitten, but they're fingerless gloves. They're really thin and they're meant to keep your hands from getting sunburnt in the summertime. So again, they're fingerless gloves. So just your fingertips are sticking out, your thumb tip. So you can do all the things about fishing you need to do without having to put a lot of uh, sunblock on your hands. You know, you don't want to get sunblock on your fingers because if you get it on the fishing line, your line deteriorates over time. And if you get it on the lures, the fish can smell it and it, it, it's a deterrent to fish, just like uh, insect repellent. So you want to keep your hands really clean and free of that stuff. You know, I try not to put a sunblock on my body as little as possible. Cover up with long sleeve, long pants, all that sunblock material clothing. The 50 sunblock type clothing. And a good hat, a floppy hat, maybe a gaiter to protect the neck. So the only time I'm putting sunblock on is my ears, my forehead, my nose around my eyes, my lips, and the nose itself. And even around the opening of the nose, you got to get sunblock in there and inside your ears because all that gets burnt really easily. Regarding Amma's question, I gave him two options. I said you can get the big welder's gloves if you're going after those big crabs. Uh, they're really thick, but they're a little awkward and you don't have much uh, dexterity in them. But if you're unloading a lot of crabs, that's what I'd go with. Or you can get gloves that are made with nail. The same uh, way they used to craft armor for medieval knights. You know, it's a thin, thin chain woven together into a glove shape. And they're made so you can handle fish with sharp teeth without getting cut. Uh, they're good around sharp hooks when you're unhooking fish to keep those hooks out of your hands. And when you're filleting fish and, and cleaning fish so you don't cut yourself with those really sharp fillet knives. So you can keep a good grip on the fish that way when you're, when you're cleaning it. So Rapala makes those gloves. Berkeley makes those gloves. I think they're about $20, $30 a pair. Maybe a little bit more money too. They're not cheap, but they last a long time. And uh, I thought they might be able to help them from getting pinched. And yes, I still wear big mitts when I'm on the snowmobile. And, uh, you know, mitts, you don't feel much, but they certainly keep your hands warm. When you're buying mitts and gloves for winter play, remember, don't just get the cheap waterproof ones because it's like putting your hand inside a plastic bag. Your hand sweats, it doesn't breathe, it gets all wet inside the gloves and the fingertips, and right away your hand gets cold because you moisture means cold and it's just not comfortable. So you want to have gloves that breathe a little bit, the Gore-Tex layer, so they're waterproof and breathable. Pay a little bit more for your outdoor play mittens and gloves. I'm not talking the ones you might shovel with or whatever, and you're just going to wear them out anyways, you know, holding the snow shovel, but the ones you're actually going to spend all day outside with. Get some good gloves or mitts. Are you one of those who curls up into a ball when the days start growing shorter? 
Do your spirits sag along with the diminishing sun? Do you fantasize about taking trips to Cuba or Mexico or the Caribbean? What keeps you from enjoying winter? You know, learning to love winter doesn't happen overnight. You need to sneak up on it, little bits at a time, so your body and your mind doesn't rebel. Start by maybe listing the things you like to do in the outdoors and the things you'd like to learn to do in the outdoors and add one or two a year. Before you know it, you'll have a bunch of things you enjoy doing in the outdoors in the winter and more things to do than you have time for. That's just okay. At least you'll be busy. So the key to all this is making sure you have the right equipment and especially warm boots. When you're picking out a pair of snow boots, you want to make sure they're not too tight and not too loose, but you don't want them loose. Bring a pair of your favorite thick winter socks, put them on when you go to try these things on, and if they don't fit like a glove, get the size half down. You don't want to be squeezed in there to the point where the blood circulation to the feet is impaired, but if there's air between your toes and the end of the boot, that's just going to become cold and your toes are going to become cold. Trust me, a half size can make a big difference in terms of keeping your toes warm. Your toes need to be touching the end of the boot. So what I just shared with you guys is local knowledge, you know, things I've learned over the years and uh, passed on to you. If you have some local knowledge you want to pass on to the listeners, send me an email, lawrence at lawrencegunther.com. According to the Journal of uh, Global Biological Change, climate change is reaching way down into the Antarctic, and uh, it's meaning you know, unpredictable weather patterns, unpredictable sea melts. You know, you hear about these glaciers shearing off and, uh, and, and less ice pack, things of that nature. What we're being told is that if this doesn't change by the end of this century, which isn't that far away anymore, right? That's 78 years. That's in the lifespan of some very young people now. These penguins will be gone. According to the Center for Biological Diversity, in 2020, they figured there's about 61 colonies. And in those colonies, all total, there's about 270,000 mating pairs. So it's not a huge number, right? I mean, you think 61 colonies, okay, that's a, that's a lot of little villages, penguins. But 270,000 mating pairs, th these pairs lay one egg a year. They lay that egg in the middle of winter, and then the chicks hatch in the spring. So that whole spring cycle has to line up just right for those chicks to, to, to succeed in life. So you have the little chicks, right? They don't come out of the eggs ready to swim. They can barely waddle. So, you know, there's a case a couple years ago of 10,000 little baby emperor penguin chicks that were just waddling along on the ice. The ice broke up early, too early, because they hadn't learned how to swim. They hadn't been taught how to swim. Then they fell into the water and they drowned. That's a huge loss, right? 10,000 out of a 270,000 breeding pairs, that's, you know, that's a good 5% of the, uh, well, I don't know math here, but now 5% of the chick population just got wiped out in one unforeseeable incident. And, and these incidents are happening more and more with the uh, global warming, and they will happen more and more frequently. You can't speed up. The, the rate these chicks learn to swim, just like here, our winters are still cold. They're still going to lay their eggs at the same time every year. It's just the spring comes faster and sooner and warmer. According to computer modeling, if this doesn't turn around, it, there's a 98% chance that this is going to happen. This is a wake-up call to get greenhouse gas emissions under control, get CO2 levels down. This has to happen. 
the U.S. Fisheries and Wildlife Agency are considering putting the emperor penguins on the endangered species list. It doesn't mean that they're doomed. What it means is there's going to be more money for research and conservation. Okay, you know, more research, more studies, more scientists going down there and count and, and watch them and study them. But it also means that when they're listed endangered, you have to protect their habitat. And part of the habitat is their food source. So right now, there's a lot of fishing taking place in the Antarctic, and that's just increasing as the ice pack reduces, as the open water season extends. It's more tempting for big, large fishing boats to go down there. What are they fishing for? Tiny little krill. These are tiny, tiny little shrimp that are the size of your, uh, you know, a fingernail clipping. These are what the penguins feed on, the, especially the baby penguins. This is their main food source. So if they can say, you know, okay, global fishing, you can't fish around these areas because this is now the, uh, the habitat of the endangered penguins. You need to stay away from these areas. At least then you've guaranteed their food source. If you think about these guys, you know, they're sort of living at the edge of survivable habitat, right? I mean, as tough as they are, this is pretty brutal conditions. These are the canary in the coal mine. If things start to go bad, we're going to see this species disappear. That's going to be a, a, a definite indicator that things are going bad. Like we know about it. We talk about it. We have scientific reports about it, have actual evidence that it's happening now. You know, this is this is what we're starting to observe. And if it keeps going uh, badly for the emperor penguins, it's up to us to speak on behalf of these critters, right? They can't speak for themselves. Nature is mostly silent. You know, we can listen to the research reports and the scientists, but that's pretty dense stuff to wade through. And those articles are pretty dry. You know, if we can make it a little more compelling without lying, without stretching the truth, but to present that information to, to people that can, you know, maybe influence politicians. It's sort of our role, I think. Follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit me at lawrencegunther.com to keep up to date on my blogs and videos. Subscribe to get the latest episodes of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther by visiting your favorite podcast provider. And please take some time to rank us and give us some comments. Send me your feedback, suggestions, and questions on email at feedback at ami.ca or on Twitter at AMIAudio. I want to thank Nazreen Abdel-Majid, the manager of AMI-audio, Zandi Frank. Hi, I'm Jenny Bovard. Join me monthly for Low Vision Moments, where I speak with awesome guests about some of the amusing things that happen when you're blind or partially sighted. Watch on YouTube or download Low Vision Moments from your favorite podcast distributor.